Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. It's another pack show today as we look at the frenzy of pulling down statues that's taking place all over the world as supposedly we erase the past. Can it be erased? We'll be talking about that. We'll also be looking at the stories coming out of Victoria about branch stacking, and uh, but we mainly want to talk about what that means uh, for politics in general. What light does it shed on the business model of political parties and how they actually operate in the real world, not the world of myth? And then finally, uh, for sporting fans and just anyone who's trying to get out of this COVID-19 lockdown, we'll be revisiting a story from a month or so ago, which is is the NRL really the litmus test of how you actually get your industry out from under these government restrictions? Amazingly, I owe Zach Gorman 10 bucks because I said there was no way the NRL was coming back in May, but they managed to do it. Should other organisations take a leaf out of their book? We'll be talking about that. We'll also have our usual books and culture segment, uh, including celebrating the 10th anniversary of internet sensation PewDiePie, Uh, We'll also have a book on the history of the Delta Blues and I will be talking about The Mirror and the Light, the concluding novel in Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall trilogy. To help us work through these issues, I have with me, of course, my co-host from RMIT University and adjunct fellow at the IPA, Chris Berg. G'day, Scott. Great to have you. And returning to the desk of power is... um, Historian, proud son of the Illawarra, NRL fan. Oh, uh, Barry. No, Barry. Um, I embody the colonial experience. That's why I understand it. <laughs> embodying the colonial experience. Uh, Dr. Zach Gorman, welcome back to this. Uh, but yes, uh, we've been following, of course, uh, what started as Black Lives Matter and then uh, became about police injustice and statues, Chris. What's, what's going on? Well, that's right, Scott. As you know, culture war is always going to beat real public policy change. And it is a bit of a shame that the very serious discussions we were having about pre- police brutality and police reform in the United States has turned into a debate about statues. Um, uh, it is actually a serious and interesting um, uh, thing. So it started with a movement really to rename a lot of military bases in the United States. Um, for example, um, Fort Benning, Fort Bragg, um, Fort Hood, a lot of the most famous military bases in the United States are named after Confederate generals. And um, for those of you who know your history, the Confederacy did not win. Um, the Civil War. Um, uh, Donald Trump has stood up against this move and has um, declared that they these monumental and powerful bases have become a part of our great American heritage. Simultaneous to this, there's been a renewal push to pull down a lot of Confederate statues as well, which has in fact spread across the Atlantic and even spread to Australia. The United Kingdom has had to board up its Winston Churchill statue. Um, there's been debates in Australia about the, um, uh, the the statues to Governor Macquarie and Captain Cook and all these sorts of things. There's a lot to unpack here, Zach, but I thought um, as um, the IPA's, or one of the IPA's resident historians, maybe you could explain to us a simple question. Why do we have statues at all? Any statues? To embody the concept of progress that we seem to have lost. So, like, the idea has always been that we are standing on the shoulders of giants, that we can see further than the previous generations because of their achievements. The idea that that undermines their achievements is a, a sort of a psychosis that doesn't make sense in the Western narrative. So, so sort of take us through that. So, um, and, and we'll get to the specific people who are being um, uh, eulogized by statues or, or um, uh, remembered by statues, but take us through sort of the logic behind that, 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 that building on progress side of it. Yeah. So that the idea is that um, the idea of Western civilization deeply ingrained is that um, progress matters, that, 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 sort of the enlightenment, um, the enlightenment, all these sorts of things is the idea that each generation will build on the next generation. And now we've, instead of looking to the next generation, we started looking back towards the last generation. <laughs> so of course, no progress is going to be made if that is where but society is focused. Isn't on. progress also a little bit about, um, moving past the past as well? Um, yes, but 
that's that's where this concept of sentiment is that everyone's really feeling at the moment has been lost. That if yes, you need to move on, but you got to realize that there are people that the mistakes that happen in human history are generally the consequences of decisions made by elites, but the emotions attached to them are attached by the masses. And you need to have a certain decorum about the sentiment of the masses. So maybe it is time to emotionally move on from some of the Confederate statues. Of course it is. Of course, of course, that is an absolutely horrific part of the American narrative, the slavery narrative. But the blood for that was shed in the Civil War. America once knew this and they seem to have forgotten. So um, help, help, this is an uh, interesting take on it, Zach. So let's take someone like, say, uh, Prime Ministers of Britain before we get to Churchill, like Gladstone, yeah. who, who was a classic pro progressive liberal prime minister, um, you know, sort of uh, of his age, um, is almost, you know, almost invented the idea of the crusading human rights politician. But I mean, uh, ten years ago, the the uh, postmodern left would have would have said, "I'm not interested in dead white males." They were sort of, uh, you know, they, it was uh, proud of being uninterested in history. So what what's happened that we've gone from being uninterested in history, everything's year zero, to now we're becoming obsessed with it and wanting to refight some battles and say, "Well, he was he was in favour of human rights, but he was also believed in." Uh, attaching that, making that an empire project, so therefore it must be a bad thing. You know what I mean? Or he had family relations that were involved in the slave trade, or rather than himself. And yeah, I mean everyone, everyone in Britain had family relations that were, you know, had sugar plantations yeah. in the West Indies, or or, or they, they, they'd invaded Ireland, or they'd. I mean, I think there's only three countries in the world that the, they haven't the, invaded. <laughs> they haven't invaded, so you can always find something in Great Britain. And that, uh, by the way, that was Nick uh, Jeffrey Blaney's point about Britain. He said, when you've got a thousand years of continuous history, there's a lot to find once you go looking for it. I think the thing that we've forgotten is that Gladstone was elected. The people in charge uh, of these democracies in the West have this. Um, this sense that they can dictate to the people right now what they should or should not be doing, whereas the traditional relationship and the re relationship that made democracy work was that it was about the people deciding what the leaders get to do. Well, is that is that also is, is it about scapegoating then? Um, I'm really making this up as I go along, but um, you know, the, you, you it's a refusal to own the collective. Uh, the collective history of your nation, rather? Is it, is it just easier yep. to then put it onto one individual well, and, 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 and say if we, if we tear down that individual? I mean, that is, that is the psychological mechanism of, of scapegoating that, uh, what's his name, Rene Giraud, uh, uh, the philosopher, talked about. Well, the, it's sort of like the left and right um, sides of politics embody two truths, that we are individuals but we're individuals as part of a community, and those two concepts need to coalesce. So, so these are all beautiful sentiments, guys, and um, uh, thank you. But um, yeah, bring it back down for us, please, Chris. <laughs> I might just pull us a little bit down and and give you my perspective. And it is absolutely right that we pull down statues that commemorate people who um, have done things that we agree are primarily famous for horrific or um, very disreputable things. So uh, um, certainly Winston Churchill um, uh, may have made mistakes as prime minister, but he is commemorated as prime minister in the United Kingdom because of his leadership during the Second World War and his um, leadership in the defeat of, of, of the Nazi empire. The Confederates, however, are famous, the Confederate generals are famous for fighting in defense of slavery and against the United States. And so it seems to me to be an unambiguous good to remove those statues. You're not removing history. You're not eliminating history. You're declining to commemorate their negative deeds in public because we, we don't lose our history. We learn more about it over time, but we're never going to lose our history. And it is always deeply important. I mean, you know, I, 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 my PhD is in history. Jack, your PhD is in history. Um, uh, history is, is fundamental to the way we imagine ourselves, but the choices of what we have in our streets and the things that we commemorate is a choice that this generation makes. Am, am I, am I not wrong, Scott? Well, what I think what we 
wrong about is um, that that is a nice academic way of thinking about it. And if only the <laughs> how if dare I, you? If how only you? if only we were focused on a democratic process yes. and, a, and, and a and a reasoned discussion in the manner in which you were speaking. I mean, someone has pointed out that the um, statue of the uh, slave trader um, in Bristol um, that has been the topic of local debate for a long time had had been to the city council for a discussion and was probably going to go back again. That is a very different thing than an angry mob just getting some ropes and tearing the damn thing down. Yeah. Uh, and then it's a fait accompli because that, that is um, that is giving into the mob and it's uh, the op and and it's it's meaning completely changes and um, and that's uh, plus, of course, you know, when you get to Churchill, it's the the sheer bloody ignorance of history. Yeah, and there's there's been more than uh, a few examples of that. One, I, mean, I, they, yeah, I was just looking at today a um, statue of the anti-slavery abolitionist John Greenleaf Whittier in California was vandalised um, uh, overnight, which is obvious that there is a group of people in these protesters that's just targeting statues for the sake of statues under the assumption that anything in our history is, or anything in in, in modern history is um, uh, condemnable. But a lot of it is, right? So the King Leopold III statue, was it third, second? Um, the King Leopold II statue in Belgium is a uh, his actions in the Congo at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century were genocidal and the Belgians have pulled down his statue quite rightly. No, because the scariest thing would be if humanity forgot its capacity for evil. We might, we have to remember our capacity for evil. The, what we forget about the Confederate statues is that they were erected after the South had lost the war. Quite long after. Yeah, they were part of the process of healing and they're also part of the this need to embody the sentiment of the masses because the vast majority, the truth is that the vast majority of people who fought for the Confederacy were not slave owners. It's the, the We used to be able to distinguish between who was culpable for their actions and for the actions of society and who's not. Yeah, but the leaders would be in that list, right? Yeah, but the le- it's not about the leaders. The le- the leaders <laughs> but the leaders are the statues. The statues are but, of the leaders. But, but this was, uh, um, <laughs> and but, I don't want I don't want this sort of Marxist style, the anonymous worker type statues, because yeah. that's also very bad. But um, but it is the statues and the leaders. So so I take your point about the importance of symbolism and the importance of a national narrative and the importance of remembering history. But it, you can take that and recognize also that those symbols change right see this is this is i think this is the problem is that we think it has to be either or because we've lost our concept of sentiment that um we all have these stories that we are part of um collectively that we can't be held responsible for but you can't tell us to abandon our stories it's too deeply ingrained in the sort of psychology of what it means to be a human. Of course, but that doesn't mean you need to have the statues of Confederate generals fighting for slavery. See, this is elite hubris. <laughs> you are an elite and you have not do not have the right to tell democracy and what to academic, do. Academic, no less. No, well, so, so I, I should be clear and I share entirely Scott's view on this, that I don't at all support the idea that we're going to make these changes to our streets, to our public sentiment by mob action. And um, uh, a, a, a bill or, or legislative action that um, takes down statues that are um, obscene in retrospect or obscene in the modern um, view is is the is the correct way to go about this. In fact, I'll point out that that Victor David ha- Davis Hanson, who you would never accuse of being excessively woke, um, uh, wrote in National Review actually a very sympathetic argument for um, removing the Confederate generals' names off the forts, um, off the military forts, and and removing some of the statues by pointing out that let's just wait until the fires, oh, quite actually, let us wait until the fires in the streets, the occupations, the defacements, the looting and the violence have dissipated, if only not to reward the bullhorn rather than the majority of vote of elected or representative bodies. Now, reading that, I think he would support in a legislative action many of these removals of these symbols. That, that's, that is my view, to, to, to clarify. One of the, um, and I can't resist, I mean, back on, back on Churchill, there's a wonderful... 
um, story on the Daily Wire about uh, people will remember Kathy Newman, um, who was famously bested by um, Jordan Peterson on um, on Channel Four. She was uh, interviewing a left wing activist um, and was <laughs> asking her about the, so asking Lorraine Jones about uh, what she thought about um, Churchill statue and the threats to the Churchill statue because this was a, an activist who generally supported everything uh, that happened. Um, and But she was specifically asked about Churchill and uh, she said, I've heard many arguments on both sides. Some say he's a racist, some say he's a hero. I haven't personally met him, she says. <laughs> well, I'm either <laughs> so, right. Yeah, I haven't personally <laughs> met him. And then and I, even Kathy Newman's like, uh, okay. So she <laughs> comes back to it and says, yeah, what do you actually think? And she goes, well, I'm going to be honest, I haven't done a lot of history work with Churchill. <laughs> Look, and there's well, it's a, like I mean, this, this isn't this the apotheosis of everything that we've been talking about. At least he studied history. You studied history. Our listeners have some interest in in, in the history of our country and, and our Western civilization. Um, even if only to be able to have these discussions. If and it's one thing to decide that it's bloody year zero, but the fact that it's only year zero because you have no concept of, so, of anything that went before that is an indictment on our education system and our entire so Scott, culture. Is your objection then that this is a movement being led by idiots rather than we should keep no, obviously we we mm. agree that Winston Churchill's mm. monument should be mm. left unmolested. But but for the most part, is your objection that this is a movement in the Victor David Hansen criticism that it's being led by rage, it's being led by ignorance, but you support removing those sorts of Confederate statues, for example? Uh, well, uh, as I said last week, actually. Just to it, pin you right down. Well, no, no, but when it comes to America, I mean, I don't have a dog in this hunt. Who, who am I to say what an American should do? Right. Um, yeah, so so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna express an opinion. Okay. I I, sus I suspect I know what this I, will make I, a hell of a podcast. No, but I suspect I know what I would do uh, if I was in in America, just as I suspect I know what I'd do if I was in the UK. But Australia is my country. All right, let's talk about Australia then. So um, there has been um, uh, there were some scenes uh, last weekend, I think it was, or um, uh, just recently, where they had to defend the uh, the police actually had to defend the monuments of Captain Cook and Governor Macquarie. And good on um, the New South Wales government and police for actually <laughs> taking some damned action, unlike those in the UK. So how should we, I mean, Zach, how, how should we think about that? So it's absolutely the case that um, these are not slave owners, these are not... Um, uh, they're not fighting in defence of slavery, but Australia does have some dark patches of its history. How should we think about the way we publicly commemorate those moments or how we modify our views of past leaders? Well, I think the thing to appreciate as the sort of world seems to be burning is how simple <laughs> Australia is. It is Captain Cook and Macquarie. It is just a couple of people because we didn't really care. Our pretensions were never as high. So this psychosis that seems to be gripping society is not going to be as deep here because that wasn't us. We never had this image of Australia. And that's, this, is, this is where the misunderstanding of Cook was, is that Cook, um, Cook is the embodiment of hope in the Australian story, which is the settler story, but there has always been the convict story as well and the, the story of sorrow. The erected Captain Cook doesn't mean that the convict story is erased, but now we think when we first erected that statue, we knew that, but now we think that the monument to Cook is trying to erase the other stories of sorrow in Australia's past. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good observation too because there's this idea that every statue has to embody every single part of Australian history to be legitimate or we've got to have a room of statues that gives us a complete tale of the the um the the beauty and the horror of 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 an entire nation's memory yeah well this is this is the problem that um that the darker parts of our past are hard to deal with that is why we get academics to deal with them but their ideas that these academics come up with are meant to just be presented out into the world and then society will take them on when society is ready for them. But this is also um, uh, the, the supposedly we're always being invited to have an encounter with 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 history in the darker, you know, through um, uh, museums. Uh, you know, uh, that, that was the debate over the um, formation of the uh, National Museum of Australia 
the new one when it was built. And the um, Melbourne Museum as well. You know, it was, it was a classic uh, back black armband uh, view um, of history, which um, uh, the Howard government in the end um, uh, did force some some changes. But it was it's sort of this. It's not just that it was an unrelenting misery guts view of Australian history, sort of unmoderated uh, black armband view, uh, but, but it was never very successful or interesting. <laughs> like it, no one cared. I mean, this is the thing. I've, I've seen memes going around on Facebook saying they should teach uh, Indigenous culture in schools like they don't. In yeah, the- yeah, you hear that a lot from people who haven't stepped in a classroom for four or five decades. Why, did, <laughs> why didn't they teach this in the 1960s? Well, no, they didn't, and, but they, they absolutely but, teach but it they sure days. as heck do now. Um, they sure as heck do, and they should, and they absolutely should at the at the same time. Um, and it, it does speak to a incapacity that we have from a public history perspective to hold those two competing or multiple competing visions of Australia at the same time, that we, um, in order to recognise injustices done to Indigenous Australians, we have to pull down Captain Cook's statue. We can't apparently do both. Um, uh, and that is a failure of the um, that is a failure of the public history profession, if you will, and probably a failure of our public debate and public discourse that we can't that apparently we have to fight each other over two starkly competing narratives about what Australia means. And and uh, Zach, I want to come back to your point about the convicts. Is 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 one of the other things that's happened? Of course, is we've we we also lose competing narratives of oppression. I mean, for you know, for a long time, it was um, uh, the the free settlers versus the, the convict. I mean, does, is, is the convict history of Australia any part of the discussion anymore? Well, this, well, this is this is why everyone's going insane because the masses aren't meant to deal with these level of questions. They were never the questions to be like had. We, I, I have a tremendous amount of optimism for Australia because. The reason that we came to terms with multiculturalism in the end was because the the narrative of sort of escapism and getting away from the world's problems was compatible with the narrative that we had already been telling ourselves through the convict that that we'd been cast out from Eden and we had to sort of make do here. And um, that is the sort of level of understanding that we need to get to is that it's both. So there's a reason that it is the Labor Party that tends to identify these things first. It's because they have the embodiment of this sort of Irish Catholic experience of being the minority sort of group in Australia and having that sort of sorrow and these sorts of things. But it's up again, it's up to society to decide when to progress. That sense of traditionalism embodied in the centre-right narrative is just as important to the yin and yang of society. But the, the contest now is not between the convicts and, and the sort of settler narrative. It's between a, a white Australian and a oh, that's what I meant. Australian um, that, that's what I meant. And, the, the, and the, the convicts have fallen out of the story yeah, altogether. Yeah, the convicts have fallen out of the story. But, but, but how do we as... Centre-right, conservative, libertarian, what have you, um, uh, thinkers. How should we think about that? That clash of visions about Australia's past. There's a there's a history of dispossession and there's a history of creation simultaneously. Yeah, I think that's what we need to appreciate is that we are the upholders of one aspect of our character, but it is not the only aspect of our character, and that. We need to we need to incorporate um, almost in a catharsis um, sense the darker aspects of our past into a um, single narrative right now because because that's the problem we've forgotten that the, our political parties are a manifestation of society. Okay. If we truly love Australia, you have to love all of it. <laughs> uh, I agree, and, and and my plea, my okay. So where I stand uh, is. Um, if you're going to build national myths, though, it, they still have to have some correspondence to history, and at the moment they have none. Um, so if you're going to say, uh, I want to um, rename the McMillan River in Gippsland because that was a figure associated with Indigenous massacres, um, that's something that can proceed from historical examination 
of of records and you can have a discussion about that but if it, if it's just you know blindly identifying any figure from the col colonial times you know when you're trying to ban a, a beer because it's called colonial um then you've actually taken leave of, of any sort of history and 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 of course it's not it's not a precision strike we'll say yeah and and of course this is the the, the point being made by um you know indigenous leaders like Warren Mundine and uh, Jacinta Price about, um, uh, you know, by all means, look look hard at the history, look hard at the present, you know, tell the whole story. That's the thing. Don't don't just swap one one myth for another. That would be my thing. So history does have a – real history does have a role to play. So that was Statue Talk with the Looking Forward podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, sp speaking of the Labor Party and myths, um, uh, we have had uh, what, uh, what I think has been a national story, but it started in Victoria. And, of course, uh, Victorians have been uh, shocked, shocked by allegations that there is branch stacking going on <laughs> inside the Victorian ALP. Uh, as part of our new media landscape, um, research done by uh, uh, Nick McKenzie, uh, in, from the age uh, now runs on 60 Minutes, um, which has got to be the first episode of 60 Minutes I've watched in about 20 years. Yeah, that's the same for me as well. So I, I do want to make that point, and it's a slightly cheaper point, but um, for years and years we've been told that media mergers would lead to lower quality news media. This is a really good example of how a media merger in an environment where um, the media is under incredible financial strain actually means that on 60 Minutes, you get really, really good journalism. Um, the story, as uh, as almost everybody in Australia, I'm sure, knows by now, um, on Sunday night, 60 Minutes, 60 Minutes aired a joint investigation that found the Victorian Minister for Local Government and Small Business, Adam Somurek, um, was involved in, had a, not just involved in, was directing um, alleged brand stacking and alleged widespread corruption. There was footage that showed MP staffers appearing to, on public money, appearing to, rather than working their ministerial jobs or their electric business, in fact, they were just spending their time playing Labor factional politics, um, getting large groups of paper members um, and also implicating a number of other Labor ministers. Um, uh, Adam Somurek has already resigned from the government and the party, but not interestingly enough, parliament. Um, two other Labor ministers in Victoria have also Resigned whilst, um, whilst protect, protesting their innocence. While protesting, I mean, of course, you know, yeah. I, mean, I, I just, you know, I just need time to think. Um, uh, and um, the Labor Party federally has now launched a takeover, takeover of the state Labor Party. Um, there's a lot of aspects to this. Um, we should probably talk a little bit first about the underlying accusation. Actually, no, I want to make a quick point though. And I, so I watched this really closely, the 60 Minutes documentary, no, the 60 Minutes show, and I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the revelation that there are hundreds of hours of secret recordings of a Victorian government minister. I don't know that that's a wonderful thing for us to hear about, and I do worry if we're just, oh, yeah, no, no, we just record government ministers. Scott, you've worked that, for government ministers. How comfortable would you be with that? This is more than an idle point. This was <laughs> a secret recording of a government minister inside a federal electorate office. Yeah. And um, uh, and uh, Anthony Albanese has been asked about this and conveniently dodged it. Um, I suspect no one's thought to ask the federal attorney general or the speaker of the house what they feel about... Um, the Australian uh, Federal Police. And, and, or the Australian Federal Police. Um, uh, it was reported in The Age today that um, uh, people who'd been uh, uh, contributed to the show uh, and appeared to speak on it were assured that it was entirely legal. Mm -hmm. Now, the only way it can be entirely legal is if they have been given permission to put that camera in the ceiling of a federal electorate office. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they're also told that uh, Mr Somurek apparently um, all he wanted was a room to make a few phone calls and they, and they said, oh, the other two rooms are locked. Why don't you go into this one? Yeah, there's also the taping of the phone calls as well. I, like, So I, I'm a bit familiar with the legislation in this because it was all to do with the data retention um, mm. debate a couple of years ago, metadata internet retention. And 
you you can't do that. So, so this, <laughs> anyway, so this is a side point, but it is a like it is a thing. But this is this is one of the things. So, but there are so many. The side points are the much more interesting points in all of this. So, if you read the ABC, the only thing yet the ABC has been able to report out of any of this is that uh, Mr. Sumurek made some terribly misogynist comments. Therefore, he is a bad person. Therefore, he has had to resign. Now, the uh, most of the stories I've read on the on on the ABC website are unable then to explain why suddenly these other two ministers are resigning as well because they didn't make misogynistic comments. But that's not the bulk of the claim. I think that's a Labor Party defence strategy. To... Uh, but I think it's a masterclass in, in, <laughs> in Labor Party uh, issue management because they've focused in on the issue of misogyny um, as a distraction from how did this video come to be? Who 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 gave it all to the age in the first place? From a yeah. And what does it, it tell you about the ALP so, business? So let's let's bring in Zach. Zach, quick question: <laughs> How many political parties are you aware that you're a member of, and um, uh, and did you pay for your membership? Uh, I haven't renewed <laughs> my Liberal Party membership for a few years over a certain um, I mean the, you, a certain social issue that the New South Wales government decided to get involved in, um, but I think really. What we've forgotten is that the Australian secret is that power corrupts. There's a reason we had tall poppy syndrome. We were a populous country and there's a darkness in that and there's an ability to produce real horrors, but there's also a sort of truth in sort of feeling your way through issues. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, the, yeah the, uh, and the thing about branch stacking, um, I don't mean to make light of it, but I think um, what the public probably wants of its of its political parties is is an acceptable level of, of, of you know branch stacking or whatever whatever it is that it takes you to run a political so, party. The less the less you want know about the interior workings of a political party, the better so for can everyone. You, can you so so there's branch stacking is another word for getting membership, right? Okay, and mm. and getting members is part of what a political party does. And one of the interesting things about Australian politics is how few political uh, few members of political parties there are. Can you just take me through, Scott, because I don't quite understand this. So there's good branch stacking and bad branch stacking, as I said, and the bad ones are the ones where you don't, where the member hasn't paid on the day or has been paid for by someone else. Can you explain to me the intuition behind that? Like, why is that the problem? Well, that that um, specific allegation in the sixty minutes episode. So that, uh, there's good branch stacking and there's bad branch stacking, and it isn't. And I'll come to that in a sec. But the specific allegation, so working backwards, um, is that uh, the people who were named a didn't they didn't even sign the application form. Yeah, so that, which is un unquestionably terrible. Unquestionably <laughs> terrible that signatures were forged. And, so and, a, and and trying to heavy someone to forge signatures as. It appears in the in and the and and so then that they uh, neither did they pay for their own memberships, but that it was paid for by funds provided by uh, Mr. Somurek or or others, as the case may be. Again, that's the allegation. So that uh, and that is against the Labor Party rules. You're meant to at least pay for your own memberships and sign and 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 know that you're a member. Ideally. So, but um, but these people knew that they were members. Uh, but this is the interesting thing, though. So here's good, um, and some of this has, uh, is allegation of ethnic brand stacking. And one of the uh, ministers who's resigned, um, uh, I haven't got uh, Carews, um, Ms. Carews. Sorry, my apologies uh, for not being able to lay my hands. Minister on. for Consumer Affairs, Gaming and Liquor Regulation. Thank you very much. Um, one of the conversations that they had is uh, she's of Lebanese background, Mr. Samirek's of Turkish background, and they're actually quite upset that they're being accused of ethnic branch stacking because she says, you know, I can, I can sign up my mum and members of my family and that's an ethnic branch stack, whereas if this other guy um, in the ALP, Tim Richardson, signs up 10 people, he's a hero. Mr. Samirek replies, yeah, if you go to a left caucus meeting, you'll think you were at the Ku Klux Klan <laughs> before describing former Upper House Gavin Jennings as, quote, the chief Klansman. So I'm not buying into any of that other than to observe that you know, one person's ethnic branch stack uh, is another person's um, effective recruiting. Zach, is the problem here that the 60 Minutes show demonstrated that Somurek, regardless of what you think of his politics, is just a terrible, terrible bloke. He comes across as a massive brute. 
No, the problem here is the conversation you two just had. The conversation is all that moral ambiguity, all that corruption that is innate to politics, and we know it's innate to politics. <laughs> the, the, the lesson of the Lord of the Rings is trying to tell us something deeply ingrained in our psychology. The lesson of the Lord of the Rings. I'm watching uh, Lord of the Rings with my kids. I, okay, I have, a, I have a public policy question then because this is something that I do, I do often think about. My proposition to you is that everything you say is true about um, small-c corruption, if you like, that's inherent in the nature of the political process. Is it a good thing to then have statutory bodies like an ICAC or a, in Victoria an IBAC or this uh, federal body um, uh, constituted with you know, virtually the standing powers of a royal commission then to sit in judgment on the internal workings of a political party. Is that actually a good thing? Does that take us closer to achieving nirvana in democracy? Well, this, this is the thing, is that until we understand that there are limitations to what can be achieved, we can't even have these conversations. There's a complete lack of maturity in politics at the moment. That It's sort of both the left and right have allowed themselves to be caught up in these utopian dreams and they're all coming crashing down. Yeah, and and I think one of the things that the 60 Minutes episode does is demonstrate how distant actual politics as it is practised is from those dreams. There was a fun quote in a uh, Herald Sun piece by James Campbell um, uh, as one cabinet minister a Labor cabinet minister, but not a friend of Adam Somiak, mused yesterday, quote, seriously, who in politics would survive having their private conversations recorded, question mark, I'll tell you, no one. Uh, this is this is politics as it is at Iran. And, and one of the, I, I may have said this on the podcast, I've said most of my opinions on the podcast before, but I'll say this one again. Um, one of the reasons that I'm a libertarian is because no matter what, if you want the state to do something, you end up vesting it in control of people who want to use the state for personal power and personal gain. And you get very strongly the opinion, the impression from this um, report that Adam Somiak was a Labor minister because that was the highest paid job they could give him, not because, oh, what a wonderful minister of, what was it, local government or something that he, mm. he, he, he would make enough. To, he's just got a real passion for the local government. And and we and we should observe. Um, uh, by the way, the uh, the <laughs> that quote about the Ku Klux Klan came from yesterday's Age. Um, uh, if anyone wants to look that up. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to say was, of course, we have talked about the Victorian ALP today. This and I, I would never want to imply that this is something limited to Victoria, but I also wouldn't want to imply that this is something limited to the ALP. Um, no. um, you know, there's, there's, there's been accusations of branch stacking even in, say, Victoria with the Liberal Party with sudden, a sudden influx flux of Mormons. <laughs> go, go figure. Um, but, but I, I can't attest to the truth of that and, uh, and other states but, uh, have, have, but have my their point various is, issues my point, as well. It is very hard to see. That, that is good, right? Bringing people into a political party because you want to build support for that political party. That's what those parties are for, Right. That's the, by design. Now, the Labor Party has used the um, idea that if you've paid for your membership, then you're a genuine member. They're using it as a proxy for honest membership or something like that. But it means nothing of the sort. It doesn't mean you're an honest member. It doesn't mean that anybody who joined because they joined as part of Adam Somiak's work is not an honest member, not a legitimate member of the Labor Party. They might be deeply passionate about Labor politics in the same way that many of the people that joined the Liberal Party in the last decade may be very genuinely interested in Liberal Party politics. Yeah, so the problem is that the Richmond Football Club can get over 100,000 members, but the Victorian ALP can't get more than 16,000 and 4,000 of those are now thought to be um, uh, dubious. Yeah, and, and the people in charge of the Labor Party at the federal level are now going to decide which ones are legitimate. And if you don't think that there's politics going to be played in that when they're thinking about the stability of the Victorian government and the Labor opposition federally, then, you know, you're kidding yourself. And stability means we all get to keep our seats. That, well, precisely, precisely. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that... That's their so, definition of stability. So, again, James Campbell, and, and I'll, I, I have to go with his assessment on the underlying factional politics about this, Somiak was preparing to roll a number of senior 
either ministers or um, parliamentarians. And now that the Federal Labor Party has taken over, they all get to keep their seats. Conveniently. 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 Um, so it is time to switch our gaze. Um, I did mention the Richmond Football Club. Um, it's time to talk about sporting codes. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, as we were talking about COVID-19, um, I talked about how hard we were going to have to fight to get out from under the restrictions which had been imposed. I said there was a ratchet effect. Um, that's ratchet, R-A-T-C-H-E-T, um, effect uh, coming out of the National Cabinet, which is easy, easier to put restrictions on uh, than it is to take them off. And the only way it's going to happen is for each individual and business to fight and kick and gouge. And at that time, the only example I actually had uh, of an organisation that was taking that approach was the NRL, uh, under the leadership of a guy whose uh, name I'm not sure I can pronounce, but I'll defer to Zach. Um, Volandis? Volandis, yes. Volandis, oh, very good. Not too bad then. Um, and uh, he said he was going to be playing NRL, uh, have the NRL back by May 28th. I I, I commended him on his, on his enthusiasm but said there was no way it was going to happen. But um, it did. Yeah, yeah, you heard it here last. Well, because why, why, how was he able to pull that off? And what does that tell us, Zach, about uh, the things that you need to do to, to uh, get up and operating under COVID-19 lockdowns? The real power in Australia is with the people. So Vlandis acted on instinct and knew that the vast majority of people in New South Wales would want the football back and demanded that the New South Wales government bring the football back. The problem is that in Victoria, it's all this like secret club where all the um, leaders of the football clubs are part of the political class. Mm -hmm. So they're all too concerned about what their other political mates think of them rather than what's actually good for the AFL. I think <laughs> so. The sort of the, the um, is that is that a classic New South Wales picture of Victoria being run out of the um, of the Collins Street elite, the uh, the old Geelong Grammar Boys, or Geelong? Oh, I'm trying to remember where the McLaughlins went. No, see, I think Sydney. There is again. This is why our stories embody um, national characters. Sydney, as our sort of founding city, still has a lot of our sort of core sort of psychology. Um, in it. And one of the things about the NRL is that it still embodies that old working class, that old Irish class, like, like concept of the working class that the Labor Party used to embody. And the left, the sort of leftist elites that are now controlling the Labor Party absolutely despise the rugby league. Like they're going to watch the AFL and go to the Swans and Greater Western City as this will be more like the European city down south. So the psychosis in the Labor Party of the elites versus the people is really just an example of the psychosis of Australian society. That's really helpful, Zach. That'll be the grab for this episode. <laughs> um, I, I think, so I know nothing about NRL and that's very clear um, uh, as everybody nods on the panel. Um, but I think it's really interesting to, uh, as, as you said, Scott, the, it's really easy to shut an economy down, turns out. Um, in the space of a fortnight, the Australian governments, state and federal, sent us all to work from home, or at least um, most of white collar Australia was sent to work from home. And now, if you call up a, um, if you call up any call centre, they'll apologise for you know the rubbish truck going past and all that sort of thing. But the reopening is really really hard. Part of the reason it's hard is because the public policy decisions haven't been made yet. Um, so uh, we were talking earlier about the um, the incredible ambiguity from state governments about, well, if you can work from home, you must work from home, but then, you know, the city's starting to warm up, people are starting to come in, we're in a studio observing social distancing, but, you know, we're in a studio right now. Um, uh, on the other hand, though, I, I worry that what we really need is more decisions like the NRL because ultimately the choice to reopen will not be made from Josh Frydenberg's office or made from Dan Andrews's office. It'll be made by individual risk managers in companies. And until those risk managers are sure that they're not going to be prosecuted for reopening and that they're not going to be sued by their employees for reopening and that their employees are actually not scared to come back to the office, that they're, that's right now easily the biggest risk to our economy, that that is slow, that that takes a long time. 
in you know in a year we will be back in our offices. I guarantee it. In a year we'll be back. But will it take us that year or will it take us two months? That that choice is going to determine our future prosperity for the next couple of years. I think it's this sort of psychology of the political class is that they've forgotten that politics is about, particularly in Australia, Australia, and this is, was Menzies' secret, politics is about solving a problem as they arise. And what's happened is that the political class has committed itself to solving every problem ever constantly, and now a real problem has a right has arisen and they don't have the ability to deal with it because all their methods were about saving the world yeah and but but also but you know we gave them that power and we we as a society share in that delusion and this is the problem out of out of this long what was it 29 year uh free of recession the long boom that australia had um you know the ability of of, of second rate managers to run uh so many um uh corporations um, that that they lost that ability to actually forge their own futures to be, to be entrepreneurial because one of the things about being entrepreneurial is you don't just create a great product you generally have to set the rules of the game um, that's part of what entrepreneurship is whereas our corporate leaders are always like we just want the government to tell us what the rules are <laughs> you know it's like they're all these renewable energy rent seeking. Um, uh, piss ants, you know, it's like, oh, they they, they got to just, just set of, you know, give give us some guidance on, you know, we want a, a free market in carbon, but we want a, a decent carbon price that'll attract investment. So they're essentially saying, you know, just keep subsidising it, and yeah. you know, and give us a good carbon. You know, tell us what the rules are. What um, and they've been doing this during COVID nineteen as well. Tell us what the rules. And to the more they do that, the more they get, the, the more they get screwed. Yeah. So this is how you know the Victorian hospitality industry. Um, Dan and you know uh, Dan, somebody made the mistake of saying, "Oh, we couldn't possibly reopen with ten people; we'd never make any money." So Dan Andrews said, "Great, then we won't reopen with ten people." <laughs> Whereas uh, in New South Wales, when that that line was floated, um, uh, Dominic Perrottet and others went, "Oh, yeah, good point. Okay, we'll make it fifty then, because you know ten is absurd. You got to fight and kick and gouge every step of the way, and and it's just it's not happening enough. I have I have no belief that we will." Um, supposedly unfreeze unless we fight for it. Too much of Australian corporate life has been geared towards brand management. It's been geared towards um, converting to woke capitalism. And so much of that brand management and woke capitalism they do in Canberra. Um, they wander the halls in Canberra, selling themselves as a, a vision of Australia as it could be. Rather than um, you know, and 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 as you're right, Scott, you know that works really well if you have three decades of uninterrupted economic mm. growth and everything seems great and we've got wonderful mining booms and 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 cool. I mean, we can spend our time thinking about the brand of our company and how it fits into various social movements. But when you have a crisis, you have it. It does not suit the times. <laughs> it does not suit the times, and a crisis requires. Courage, courage, which it appears the NRL has shown, but courage, which unfortunately we are going to have to see from every single company in the country if they are going to survive. Now, if they don't survive, and, and we've spoken about this before, and I suspect that we're going to see a massive amount of business failures when JobKeeper, the JobKeeper wage subsidy ends, well, we're going to need new entrepreneurs to build new companies in an incredibly uncertain political uh, economic, social environment. And that's the scary part. And that's what should be keeping Josh Frydenberg awake at night. Yeah, because um, one of the things uh, PwC, uh, one, of the, one of its partners made a great point the other day that as we went into the lockdown, of course, the first things um, a lot of enterprises had to do was deplete their working capital just to ensure they survived, particularly in that sort of window until JobKeeper come along. So they come out of the lockdown with no working capital at all. How do you rebuild inventory, start taking staff back on? Because uh, amazingly, staff are not productive on day one for the most part. And and really simple things. Like, so you you have a, we've all been to cafes now, I hope, and we've all been to the occasional restaurants and they've had to do a lot of significant changes to layouts, new furniture, removing lots of furniture. So they're working on um, uh, smaller staff levels, they've had to make significant capital changes, and you just expand that through the whole economy. We don't know 
what sort of rules we're going to be required to do in July to reopen offices or August or September. We don't know how often they're going to change. We, when, when the borders a, are going to come down. There's a lot of companies that are thinking um, uh, very heavily about moving away from hot desking or from open plan offices. Um, you know, and, I, and I also commend uh, those who have taken the legal action against the Queensland government over, over the um, the border lockdown and the, the impact that's having on the tourism industry because clearly just presenting an economic analysis of the effect of the lockdown on the tourism industry is not having the desired effect. I, I, I just think, I was thinking about this this morning actually. So one of the biggest, so the Melbourne-Sydney air route is one of the most heavily trafficked air routes in the world. I think it's the most profitable or second most profitable or something like that. It has the most flights or second most flights in the world. We are a fully national economy, in part because of those connections in between the cities. Right now, there's something like four or six flights a day on that air route. We have done so much damage to our deeply integrated national economy. The amount of money it's going to take to restart those links, to rebuild those links, is incredible. And nothing the Commonwealth government can do will help that because, you know, they're, they're going to promise a lot of stimulus packages, and we could talk about the specifics of those, but it's not—they're not that interesting. And more to the point, they don't tackle the fundamental problem that there's not working capital available to these companies to make those necessary entrepreneurial changes. Yep, and it's hard. And uh, just as an aside, still on sport, um, cricket lost its CEO because he was unable to map a plan back towards um, um, just getting for, I, I actually haven't looked into it. Where, where, which city is he from? Uh, <laughs> just for, if we're talking about political culture. Uh, not that I, think, not that it, I don't think be Sydney Melbourne? has been corrupted because, be yeah, it is this elitism. It, the, the snobbery of the fact that people in the eastern suburbs felt they had to go for the Swans rather than an NRL football team says everything wrong with Australia right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is the world through an NRL lens, um, uh, but with an element of truth. We have come to that part of the show where we uh, do our books and culture segment where we talk about what we've been reading, watching and listening to, shall we? Take it from yeah, so as, as as regular listeners know, I'm very embarrassed. I hadn't been reading many books, so I've read a book. Scott, I'm reading a book. <laughs> Good work. I know. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I'm reading a book um, uh, on the history of the Delta Blues by Ted Giola, um, published in 2008. I previously actually talked on this podcast about um, a more recent book of his called Music, A Subversive History. But this older book is about the evolution of the Delta Blues, a very well-worn um, a topic in musical history, but um, he's a fantastic writer and um, makes some really interesting points. The one I did want to bring out that I thought was the most interesting is, and, and he doesn't actually go into this as much as some other um, histories of the blues do, but it's a really interesting point. It's the uh, how do you get from the um, musical culture of West Africa to the musical culture of the Delta at the start of the 20th century. The Mississippi Delta. The Mississippi Delta, my apologies. Um, and he has some interesting speculation about how some of the West African traditions were translated over the course of a century. So disrupted by slavery um, and rebuilt or re-remembered, perhaps you might say, um, into the modern blues. And the, the point that he makes is West African music, um, as we know it, as we understand it historically, was very much focused on um, uh, communities and large groups telling stories about shared histories and a lot of sort of call and response um, type work. And, the, and the, the puzzle is, well, how do you get from there, this community, large group, call and response stuff, to single or small groups singing songs um, uh, about individual tales of personal disappointment, personal personal love. And, and he does make the interesting point that that call and response is actually is um, reflected in the fact that a lot of blues music and subsequent rock music repeats lines a lot. Hmm. So they'll repeat lines over and over and we think, oh, that's the chorus. That's cool. In fact, those are a potentially, in, in his very speculative admittedly argument, a, a shadow of that West African call and response. Um, that was what actually most interested me because it's quite a quite a cool way to think about 
um, the structure of modern music. And 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 as listeners will know, but I should should repeat, of course, it's interesting to study the Delta Blues because it becomes such a deep part of the music that we have now in its many diverse genres from rock to hip hop to to everything. No, that's where it all started, and um, uh, it makes me also think of uh, country music. Um, which is more the sort of Scots Irish tradition, you know, up in the Appalachians, and um, uh, I think there was a lot of cross influence there too. I mean, that's why they call it. I like the phrase roots music. Yeah, <laughs> yeah blues, country. You know, it's it's all it's all jumbled up in there. Yeah, and it tends to it tends to be poor communities. Um, mm. uh, uh, that so of course the history of blues is a, a lot of um, uh, promoters wandering around the Delta just recording everyone they can find some good some bad in all sorts of um, uh, genres sometimes on musical instruments that barely functioned um, and from that of course we've got all these incredible recordings of um, uh, of of so many musical traditions that now as music sociologists are just pouring through them trying to figure out well where the hell did this come from um if i can be allowed a quick anecdote i uh got interested in the blues like most you know boring white guys do at some <laughs> stage in their life present company accepted uh in the 90s and went to the byron bay blues festival and that was at a time when you could still trawl the delta looking for these old blues men who hadn't yet been really recorded mm. or made it and there was um a bloke called rl burnside you know who, who um who fit the bill like he'd missed the first wave um, and the second and the third and the fourth. Yeah, but they managed to find him. He was able to cut a few albums and um, and he was great. And um, But he he truly lived the life. He'd, um, he'd been convicted for manslaughter and he was asked about it. And uh, he said, well, you know, I said, what happened? And he said, well, I didn't, I didn't kill anybody. I just put a gun to this guy's head and pulled the trigger. And what happened after that was between him and God. Um, he went to prison for it. And then this being the Mississippi Delta, um, he was requir required to pick cotton, essentially. So the governor let him out. That was that was how things uh, were done. In what, which decade was this? Um, uh, this would have been uh, 40s and 50s. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, that that they were essentially used as as the uh, African American prisoners were used as uh, bonded labour for the local um, uh, local landowners. So. They so the good news, you get out of prison. Bad news is you're going to pick cotton for the next five years and, and probably not be paid. So he'd actually lived the life. So, so it was a real, a real tradition. <laughs> that's my, that's my Delta Blues story. That's a good. One. Um, but anyway, back to the 16th century. Uh, my book is uh, Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light, which is the uh, the final book in the um, Wolf Hall trilogy, uh, tracing uh, the life of Thomas Cromwell, advisor to Henry VIII. Um, the first two books, uh, one, Hilary Mantel, the um, Man Booker Prize, and this might very well win a third, which would be absolutely unprecedented. Um, it is actually truly magnificent, I think, as a, as a novel, one of the, uh, the best historical uh, novel I've ever had, uh, ever read. Um, unlike many historical novels like, say, War and Peace, which, you know, try to describe a, a theatre of operations, this for three books in a row you're just inside the head of Thomas Cromwell, this advisor, uh, first of all to Cardinal Wolsey, um, uh, who uh, got on the wrong side of Henry VIII because he wouldn't give him a divorce, uh, and then seamlessly Cromwell was able to manoeuvre himself into the employee of Henry VIII, um, doesn't end well, spoiler alert, but, <laughs> but if you know your history, um, uh, there it is. Um, it's as looking forward podcast listeners do. Yes, <laughs> that's right, as, it, as we all do. Um, so this, this, uh, this novelistic technique of you just, it's not first person, but it's, it's you, you almost, follow, you're literally following him around the room, what he's touching, smelling, feeling, the conversations he's having with the king. And the other, the other fascinating thing is, um, uh, it is unapologetically about the religious currents and the Reformation. It paints Cromwell as um, absolutely an agent of um, a, a Lutheran-style um, Protestant Reformation in England as opposed to uh, Henry VIII, whose only real interest was um, asserting his supremacy over that of the Pope. Uh, he wasn't necessarily interested in changing the doctrine all that much. 
Um, so it's it's very much, I think, from uh, what's almost the the weak history of of, of the Reformation in England, and and um, uh, that 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 a true Protestant, not just Anglican, history of Britain. So I I think that's got a bit of a blowback from Hilary Mantel in different parts, but it's fascinating in its own right. Um, I believe the BBC will be making now a sequel to the oh, 2015 Wolf Hall. Which was incredibly well done. Incredibly well done. Hopefully they got uh, Mark Rillance back. Um, they should have, they actually compressed the first two books into that TV series. They should have, if it was Hollywood, they would have, you know, well, Netflix now, you would have made two series <laughs> out of it. would be a 90 episode. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. Um, uh, but there's certainly enough material uh, for it. So if you haven't already read uh, Wolf Hall, um, do go back to the start of the series and read that and then work your way through them because it's um, it's absolutely terrific. Um, so my culture pick this week is um, sort of just describing the benefits of hindsight. So now <laughs> as everything is collapsing, we can see why things happened. And um, an insight into the millennial culture is obviously that PewDiePie over the last decade has become the most popular YouTuber and has stayed there year after year. Who's that? Who's that? Sorry. PewDiePie. Uh, his name is really Felix. Um, he's a Scandinavian. He's from Sweden, um, now lives in UK. And he started off um, just doing video games and just sort of really inane nothingness. But then he sort of gradually matured over the years and he's done, he's tried to incorporate um, talking about great books and certain things into his um, videos he puts up and managed to get, say, a couple of million views on them. They're obviously not as popular as his sort of more crazy comedy ones that are his bread and butter, but it's still that sort of underlying journey that millennials are sort of going on with him as this sort of sense of learning that they can project onto PewDiePie because what they're screaming out is that there's no meaning left in anything. The rhetoric has taken over. The reason that um, boomers can't understand memes. Zach, is, was, Zach was doing quote marks. I yeah, wanted to clarify is, when he said boomers. Is because they're just a scream for is there truth in the world because we have a generation that has grown up being taught that there isn't truth in the world because rhetoric has taken over. So so this is a, a journey of discovery with someone else. Yeah, it's, a, it's projecting, again, what becomes popular is a, it reflects society and it's both happening at the same time. So you have the individual has to like PewDiePie is making his own actions on this journey. He's making the decisions that are becoming popular, but it's then also a reflection of society that he becomes popular. So, but is that, that's, is that almost a message of hope, Zach? That, yeah. that the, the millennials having started from a position that it can all just be um, cynical and silly and, and, and at the surface and it's, but it wasn't sustainable for him or his audience in the end. Well, this is what we've forgotten is that all the greatest ideas speak for themselves. And he, like, this is about this idea of the desire for power corrupts and all these things. It's the actual things that change the world for the good are done by the people who don't want the power. It's their idea is so good that the politician has to take it up. It's not Thatcher that's the hero. It's the economists behind Thatcher that created the progress. Minor point of order, Scott. Millennials, no, it's not about the millennials. The It's Gen Z, so it's the post-millennial generation. I am a millennial. I was born in 1982. That is a, that is a old millennial, but that mm. is millennial nonetheless. What we're talking about is a generation that um, many of whom were born after 2000, many of whom were born after the September 11 terrorist attack. Uh, but, um, that is a completely new no, generation. No, but so, so you said, you said PewDiePie had started 10 years ago, so no, we are... What what generation it's, are we talking about? Yeah, so 2000. He's he, he's a year or two older than me. So he, he, he's um so obviously the, there's a certain age gap that you know he's he tends to appeal to people sort of younger than him, hmm. um because he needed to be in that position of sort of a slight yeah. older but still understanding to be able to do this, um. But yeah, it's a we project we, we forget we just it's this it, people are lacking the ability to comprehend that there is a yin and yang like we've the all all civilizations have come up with this idea of balance for a reason but it's I, the aristotelian mean I, I will make that serious point though because there is um i think so much of our political 
debate, particularly in the last decade, has been framed as millennials versus boomers. But there is another generation coming up with different ethos. They're not just digitally native, but they're they're genuinely educated by YouTube. Um, they are on different social media platforms than you know oldies like ourselves. Um, there is a there there is a new political contest coming up, which I, I want to know more about. Um, uh, but it is a will be a distinct political contest because it's a generation with distinct and new ideas. Well, that's no, that's a point to um, point out is that yeah, this this conflict between the millennials and the boomers is just a manifestation of the fact that we can't identify our elites anymore. The millennials want to blame people for what's going on, but they don't know who to blame, so they just blame the entire generation. Um, Gladstone. Gladstone. Yeah, well, yeah Gladstone's Gladstone. fault um, for yep. everything. And Churchill. So some bloke called Churchill will blame him. No, no, but uh, we have to have faith in the young generation because otherwise who will pay the taxes to look after us <laughs> when we're old? Um, the boomers know what they're doing. I think that is the only philosophy so they I, have. I, you'll never hear a negative word about today's tax payers. <laughs> That's right, tax payers <laughs> of tomorrow. Um, uh, you have been listening to Looking Forward. Don't forget Looking Forward is a podcast produced by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org and see how you can join. And this is our end of financial year appeal. So um, please do keep those cards and letters rolling in, as they say in the classics, or you could do it online, ipa.org.au. Uh, big thank you today to my co-host, Dr. Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Good show, I uh, thought. Uh, wonderful. Uh, just We're completely unbiased. <laughs> yeah, we'll just, um, oh, I just sprained something patting myself on the back. Uh, Dr. Zachary Gorman, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks. Uh, that's, that's our mandatory NRL plug done for the next month. Uh, I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Big thank you uh, to Mitch and to Steve in the control room, and we'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.